If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, I'm Dave Musgrove, and this is the fifth and indeed final History Extra podcast for May 2012. Coming up in this week's episode, we have... I think one has to be careful just imagining that Napoleon was foolish and that Russia was unbeatable. Um, Neither of those things are true. That was Dominic Levin discussing the French invasion of Russia in 1812. The really striking thing about the destruction of the Buddhas of Balmian was how much effort it required to bring them down. That was Llewellyn Morgan, author of a new book on the Buddhas of Bamiyan. So the podcast is brought to you from the team behind BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents, and you can also subscribe. There are more details of the latest issue and subscription deals on our website, which is historyextra.com. You can also purchase a Kindle edition of the mag, direct from the Amazon website, and our iPad edition is available from the Apple newsstand. Also, we're on facebook.com slash historyextra and twitter.com slash historyextra. Now then... 200 years ago, Napoleon launched a massive invasion of Russia, seeking to bring to heel the only continental power still holding out against him. He marched in confidently with 600,000 men, but returned a few months later with his great army in tatters. Professor Dominic Levin is an expert on this period of Russian and European history, and he's written a piece for our June issue about Napoleon's ill-fated gamble. BBC History Magazine's Rob Attar met up with him recently to find out how Russia was able to defeat the mighty Corsican and whether this episode bears any similarities to Operation Barbarossa in the Second World War. What was Napoleon's motivation in invading Russia? Napoleon wanted to destroy the last independent great power on the continent so that essentially he could run continental Europe as he saw best without really having to take into account any independent uh, you know, rival empires or great powers. He also believed that he could not hope to force the British to make peace so long as they believed that there were continental powers with whom they could ally themselves at some point down the line. And he wanted, you know, more specifically to force Russia back into the continental system so that it would become a pawn in his economic war against Britain. So was Russia at this point the last power outside of Britain that was really challenging Napoleon? Russia was the last independent great power. Austria had essentially decided that, you know, enough was enough and that if it uh, opposed, let alone challenged Napoleon again, he would simply destroy the Habsburg monarchy. Prussia had been destroyed as a great power after, you know, the defeat at Jena and then the Treaty of Tilsit. So Russia, yes, indeed, was the only independent great power left. What were Napoleon's prospects at the start for a successful invasion? I mean, Napoleon hoped that if he could destroy the main Russian field armies, in other words, the first army, Barclay de Tolly's first army and Bagration's second, 
um, then Alexander would be forced to make peace because it would be impossible to rebuild, uh, you know, a professional army um, in the course of the war. And that calculation was correct. Um, and most people expected that Napoleon would succeed in doing this. He himself expected that. And there was a perfectly reasonable chance that he would have succeeded in doing that. Uh, he was thwarted, above all, by the determination of Barclay de Tolly, to some extent backed by Alexander, um, not to allow his army to be committed to battle until the odds were almost equal, and to draw Napoleon into the interior. But um, in the first place, you know, it's easy to say that. It's a great deal more difficult to manage a retreat um, over many hundreds of kilometres with Napoleon on your tail. Um, takes a great deal of, of skill and determination and discipline. Secondly, of course, I mean, Barclay's strategy, Alexander's strategy, was deeply unpopular with most of, you know, the Russian elite, including with virtually all the generals in his army. So it took a great deal of moral courage and determination to sustain that strategy in the face of ferocious criticism. Uh, so, I mean, you know, I think one has to be careful just imagining that Napoleon was foolish and that Russia was unbeatable. Um, neither of those things are true. And was the strategy of continuous retreat, was that Alexander's idea from right from the start, or did that develop? It was Alexander's idea right from the start. He and Barclay de Tolly, from well before the war, uh, the war's beginning, had devised a strategy of deep retreat, abandoning essentially all of Lithuania and Belarusia to the invader, and hoping, believing, that uh, you know an invading army crossing those areas uh, would find it very difficult to feed itself, let alone feed its horses and that this would result in the breakdown of discipline and, you know, in time, as more and more troops deserted, more and more horses died, more and more men had to be deployed to preserve and protect these long lines of communication, the, um, the odds would even. Uh, and that was a correct calculation. So what, what was Napoleon's best strategy at this point? Did he need a decisive battle? Napoleon always... Uh, based his um, his grand strategy on decisive battles. Um, he, you know, in a sense, uh, conducted a form of blitzkrieg. Um, this was the absolute essence of Napoleonic warfare. Um, you stun the enemy by the speed um, of your of your manoeuvres and your ability to coordinate very large bodies of troops um, over a wide area, um, moving them at a speed and with an imagination that your enemies couldn't match. Uh, and he hoped and expected to, to do exactly the same in Russia. Uh, it was more difficult in Russia because of the, it was more difficult to live off the land, the distances were so much greater, but it wasn't impossible. Um, it was not an unrealistic strategy per se. So why wasn't it able to succeed? Did Napoleon make some crucial mistakes? Napoleon did make a number of absolutely crucial mistakes. Um, you know, he could... Uh, have caught the Russian army at Smolensk um, and destroyed much of it, for instance. Um, it's a good deal more debatable whether he threw away a chance of decisive victory at Baradino. I think that, you know, is you can argue the toss either way. But it wasn't just that he made mistakes, it was also that Barclay, as I say, showed very great resolution in pursuing this strategy in the teeth of tremendous opposition from his fellow generals 
and that also, you know, the Russian rearguards uh, performed with a great deal of discipline and skill. Mounting long, long retreats is about the most difficult challenge to an army's cohesion and discipline. Um, and if you look at a number of occasions in the Napoleonic Wars, I mean, other European armies more or less disintegrated. You know, um, the French obviously disintegrated in the retreat from Moscow. Total collapse of discipline. Uh, the Prussian army disintegrated after Jena and Auerstedt. And the British army didn't quite disintegrate, but it came within shouting distance of it on the retreat to Corona. And again, to a significant degree, on the retreat from Burgos in 1812. So, you know, this was not an easy manoeuvre. Um, and it was carried off partly, of course, as the Russian army was extremely disciplined but also because they had the best horses, the best light cavalry in Europe. And that also meant they had the most mobile horse artillery. And light cavalry and horse artillery, plus disciplined infantry, and commanders who, you know, grew in experience and confidence as the campaign went on. That was the key to the successful retreat, you know. By July, August, the, the, you know, the Russian light cavalry was very superior to the French. The French had no answer, really, to the mixture of Cossacks and regular light cavalry. Um, and that did make a big difference. Of course, it became absolutely total after, you know, the Napoleon sat in Moscow, the retreat. But even in, in the first weeks of the war, the one area in which the Russians are always superior is light cavalry and horses. And what was the importance of Napoleon taking Moscow? He, he thought that that would that bring... Russia to the negotiating table, was that very hard for Russia to then to let that happen and not negotiate? I mean, Napoleon's real target was not territory, it was not cities, it was the Russian army. His main goal was always to destroy the Russian army in the correct belief that if he could destroy, you know, the veteran cadres of the Russian army, um, Alexander would be forced to make peace, and that was pretty much true. Um, he, he, you know, he, he catches the Russian army at last at Baradino, inflicts tremendous damage on it, but doesn't destroy it. Uh, and the Russians then abandon Moscow. Uh, so Napoleon finds himself sitting in Moscow and then having to improvise a strategy, you know, hoping against hope that this will persuade Alexander to make peace or that there will be pressure on him from the nobility or even from the Cossacks. I mean, the basic problem is that Napoleon doesn't understand how Russia works, you know, and he hasn't listened to the relatively small number of advisers he possesses um, who did have a better understanding of how it worked. Above all, his ambassador, Kalankov. What were they telling him he should be doing? Well, Kalankov, of course, never wished to invade Russia. You know, he thought this was a mistake. He certainly thought it was a mistake to combine invading Russia without attempting to make peace with Britain, you know. Um, he also warned Napoleon in advance that Alexander was much shrewder um, and Russia would be much more united in the face of an invasion um, than Napoleon thought, you know, imagined. Uh, but the basic issue was, I mean, Napoleon got to Moscow and he didn't really know what to do next. I mean, in a sense... It's not at all surprising that Alexander didn't make peace just because Napoleon had got to Moscow. Um, you know, Napoleon got to Vienna on a number of occasions, and that didn't end the war. Napoleon got to Berlin, and Frederick William of Prussia went on fighting. Moscow wasn't even Alexander's capital, not his real capital, you know. So it's not surprising he went on, but 
it's also true that the occupation of Moscow and then its destruction, which of course was blamed on the French by Russian opinion, did create an absolute storm in terms of Russian public opinion, you know. And it would have actually been completely impossible for Alexander to make peace at that point, even had he wished to do so, which he definitely didn't, you know. Um, and at that point, of course, Napoleon's strategy has completely collapsed. He doesn't know what to do. How much was the winter responsible for the disintegration of the French army? Look, the winter is a fact of Russian life. You know, if you invade Russia and you forget about the winter, you're an idiot. Uh, once, I mean, the, the winter really does matter. Of course it matters in the disintegration of the French army by November, December. Um, but until December, it wasn't a particularly cold winter. I mean, Russian winters are just Russian autumns are cold, you know. Uh, in, in fact, the biggest trick the weather played was have a sort of temporary thaw, uh, because that was what almost resulted in Napoleon getting caught at the Berezina. Uh, you know, in, in other autumns or early winters, the Berezina might well have been frozen, at which point, you know, crossing it would have been no problem. Uh, the, the real point is that Napoleon sits in Moscow for much too long, uh, he then, because he doesn't want to admit that he's simply retreating, instead of marching west back to Smolensk immediately, he heads south, you know, to try and uh, get to Kutuzov's base at uh, Kaluga and even possibly attack the great arms industry centre at Tula. That wastes yet more time, so that by the time Napoleon actually turns back for full-scale retreat, winter is now really approaching. There was no reason to waste six, seven, six weeks in Moscow and then another ten days marching south. Um, but because he did that uh, and achieved nothing, you know, he didn't capture Kaluga, he didn't destroy the Russian army, um, he's then in a really difficult position. And the losses on the retreat were huge, weren't they? Something like 30,000, 40,000 people returned? Less. I think only, uh, well, it depends how you calculate it. Uh, of the troops who got to Moscow... Um, barely a quarter survived you know of course he picked up other troops on the way back as well so in fact the losses in fact of the troops who actually got to moscow much less than a quarter survived because the entire grand armee um if you exclude the prussian and austrian corps on the flanks and one or two other usually non-french units um you know they got about twenty-five thousand men if that back across the border so it was a, a huge disaster. Having said that, of course, um, they suffered even bigger casualties in the first half of the campaign. If you look at the way in which French strength was depleted, you know, after all, Napoleon invades Russia in all with over 500,000 men. He never gets more than 100,000 to Moscow. That is the result of, you know, an enormously wide front and very extended communications, plus vast losses as a result of desertion, disease, all of the things that you'd expect. You know, the basic point is it is very difficult to feed an army of that size. You know, in uh, in the Russia of that time, it seems strange that Napoleon would have got these calculations so wrong when he got things like this completely right in previous campaigns. Well, in the first place, Napoleon's style of warfare works much better in the core of Europe, which is richer, which has got much better communications, and where, you know, armies, firstly, are not covering anything like the same distances. Secondly, they're able to live off the land, uh, as are their horses. If you're trying to operate particularly in Poland, Lithuania, Belarusia, none of this is true. 
so you have to drag a far larger amount of your food um, and even your you know f fodder for the horses with you and that is a huge undertaking do you believe the russian generals and leadership get enough credit for their role in defeating napoleon in general um i think people have been fully willing to accept the courage of the russian you know officer corps and its generals uh they haven't been much inclined to assign it much skill and sometimes correctly i mean you know there's no question i think that in june 1812 the french army is on the whole superior to the russian even if you discount you know the fact that napoleon is uh both a military genius and of course as head of state as well as you know he has a power and a um which no russian commander can match uh i think you have to pay you know due attention and and, and give due credit to, to barclay and alexander uh, and to those who advise them in devising a strategy which played to russian strengths and french weaknesses uh understanding the nature of the the napoleonic system both political and military and devising a strategy which would exploit for example napoleon's determination to finish the campaign in one year uh they, they didn't retreat you know all the way to smolensk by accident i mean this was a clear barclay was always committed to not uh engaging napoleon in a full-scale battle until you know he had worn the french down uh so that they were you know almost equal in number uh alexander wavered uh, alexander of course had always hoped that they would stop napoleon at the camp at drissa on the upper divina uh which was unrealistic uh it could only have worked if the french army had been much smaller uh, but then again you know this is in the nature of russia and it's kind of part of the tragedy of the you know russia over the centuries that that western border is so open it's very difficult to protect the russian western border there are no natural obstacles you know uh huge areas to cover uh so it was a difficult issue you know the planning i mean i think interestingly that the russian army as a you know in purely professional military terms fights better in 1813 14 much better um more professionally staff work much better um coordination of infantry cavalry artillery use of reserves uh light infantry tactics everywhere you look uh particularly when they've had a rest um you know by the by by, by the middle of 1813 and in the autumn 1813 campaign that is i think the russian army at its best and i mean you only have to look i mean all the great victories were actually won in 1813-14 not in 1812 uh they never truly defeat napoleon's army um in open combat until you know the napoleon is retreating from moscow and he's all, his army is already half starved and disintegrating so if 1813 and 14 were the big victories against napoleon why is it that we that 1812 has such an historical importance well i mean in the first place obviously enough you couldn't have had 1813 without 1812 1812 you know wrecks uh, the, the core of napoleon's veteran army uh and so very much weakens him it doesn't by any means destroy him but it very much weakens him it also opens the opportunity for the russians to invade central europe 
and it inspires the Prussians and then the Austrians to have the courage to turn against him again. So, I mean, 1812 is the precursor in that sense. And, you know, 1812 is also just an extraordinarily dramatic story. You know, this vast army which goes into Russia at a time when Napoleon seems all-powerful and disintegrates there. But there's also, a, a, I mean, a more basic point uh, about nationalism. Uh, the Russians remember 1812 because that fed into a Russian patriotic myth. It's partly 1940 and the British syndrome, being on your own against the world, defending your home territory. That's always a fine national myth. Um, coalitions are, are more problematic. Uh, but it's also in the Russian case that very widely, in fact, to a considerable extent, even at the time, but certainly later, the 1812 campaign is interpreted as a national war, a Russian war. 1813-14, these are campaigns fought abroad. This is a war of the, uh, of the empire. Um, this is traditional great power politics, you know, to do with ideas of glory and security and everything. It doesn't have the same resonance. And then, of course, there's Tolstoy. You know, Tolstoy ends his novel in December 1812 with the Russian army in Vilna. It's a long way from Vilna to Paris, particularly with Napoleon, you know, trying to block you. Uh, but no, uh, Tolstoy wasn't interested in that because he wasn't interested in international relations. What he's interested in is the war and its impact on Russian consciousness, on Russian national identity, on Russian patriotism. And after all, he wrote that novel to an extent as a as a way of explaining the subsequent you know, so-called Decembrist Rising of 1825. In other words, the evolution of elements of the Russian elite in a more nationalist, liberal, free-thinking direction, uh, which, after all, was enormously important for the subsequent history of Russia. So all his focus is on the, the domestic uh, fallout of the war and its longer-term domestic influences, um, and he had an enormous influence in terms of how Russians subsequently perceive things. So those, I mean, you know, there are other reasons as well, but I think those are probably the key ones. And had Napoleon managed to defeat Russia, what would that have meant for the, the Napoleonic Wars? Would Napoleon then have been able to defeat Britain, do you think? I doubt whether it was ever in Napoleon's power to defeat Britain. Uh, Britain was enormously strong. Uh, it had more or less a lockhold over international commercial routes. Um, and it would have taken a very, very long time, even if it had been conceivable, for Napoleon to mobilise Europe's resources to build the kind of navy which would have secured, you know, uh, the channel and made it possible to invade Britain. It's not completely beyond the bounds of possibility, but it's a long shot. It would have been equally completely impossible, though, for the British to defeat him. Um, so you'd have had a stalemate. Uh, and I, it's difficult to say how that stalemate would have ended. But you do always have to... I mean, Napoleon could have consolidated if not an empire across the whole of Europe, then certainly a, a European system dominated by France. Um, you know, everything went so quickly, he didn't really have time to do that between 1804 and 18, 1812. Uh, 
but he was doing some things in that direction already and he could have done more um so you know it's it's not self-evident that his system was going to fall to bits immediately of its own weight i don't think that's true on the other hand of course you know when you're looking at britain you do have to take on board the fact that uh, you know the british for instance are conquering an empire in india at exactly the same time that napoleon's conquering this empire in europe the revenues of british british india in 1815 are greater than the revenues of the russian or austrian empires you know this is a huge you know source of british power um and it's there's almost no way in which napoleon can touch them obviously there's quite a lot of parallels with napoleon's invasion and hitler's invasion do you think it's wrong to try and draw too many close parallels between them there are parallels and they're important the same time you have to be careful you know um it's it's obviously the case that you know invading russia has certain problems attached the place's size its scale you know all these kind of things and then european geopolitics has right from you know the, the late 18th century deep into the mid 20th century certain fundamental features you know if you're trying to conquer the whole of europe uh even if you succeed in conquering you know the european core charlemagne's empire or what you know, the, the founder states of the european union in other words france western central germany the low countries and northern italy that is not easy but it's doable but you then face these two great power centers on either periphery the british and the russians and you've got to try and defeat them simultaneously which requires naval power against britain you know formidable land power logistical power as well against russia and mobilizing all of that simultaneously uh and directing it intelligently is a very very major challenge and it's the same challenge that uh, wilhelm and then uh, hitler faced in the 20th century so at one level yeah there are very stark parallels even before you get to the obvious things like the russian winter you know on the other hand you have to be careful uh, because you know you, you are dealing with different eras different regimes different possibilities you could at a one level say that both hitler and napoleon lost because they attempted a purely military strategy a blitzkrieg strategy and they didn't exploit the internal weaknesses of the russian empire poles serfs 1812 and all the elements in soviet society who loathe the stalinist regime in 1941 to 2 there's truth in that but i think it's also true that you know in the earlier period in the napoleonic era you aren't dealing with modern warfare or with modern society you know i think and this is to return to something i've said before that if napoleon had succeeded in his aim of destroying the russian vet you know the, the russian army the professional army he could have forced alexander you know to make peace because you couldn't rebuild that kind of army in the course of a war it's rather different in the second world war in the second world war you know you're dealing with a modern world in which the army is the citizenry really it's the nation in arms uh, and hitler did kill or capture simply enormous numbers of russian or soviet troops uh 
nevertheless, it was possible to rebuild, uh, you know, a truly formidable Soviet army. That's fair enough that Napoleon, you know, he didn't succeed in destroying the whole old Ghana, but he, you know, he hugely uh, damaged the, the, the pre-war army. But it's easier, as I say, to rebuild an army once you're dealing with a modern, semi-literate or literate society, um, modern methods of mobilisation, you know, all this kind of thing. The core of the old, you know, of, of, of Tsarist power in the early 19th century is a pr professional veteran army uh, whose strongest motivation is the, the loyalty of veteran soldiers to their units, you know, their regiments, their companies and their colleagues. Uh, these are men who served 25 years in the army. You know, they never go home. Uh, the army is their, their new home, their substitute home. I mean, not the army as a whole, their regiment, essentially. That's not easily rebuilt. Um, and that is a fundamental distinction between the, you know, the Russia of Alexander I and the Russia of Stalin. So trying just to equate, you know, the challenge facing Napoleon and the challenge face, facing Hitler, in, in my opinion, is a bit dangerous. And to what extent was the Soviet army and state of 1941 inspired by what had happened in 1812? Not initially at all. You know, after all, the Soviet state is built on rejection of Tsarist tradition. Uh, there's been a slight willingness to reincorporate elements of the military patriotic tradition in the 30s under Stalin, but it doesn't go very far. Uh, and Stalin's aim when the war begins is not at all to fight a, you know, a Barclay, Tatolik, Kutuzov-like 1812 campaign deep into the heart, Russian heartland. On the contrary, his aim is to advance, you know, to mount an offensive war. And his aim is to spread international socialism. You know, so initially, no. But of course, once the Germans penetrate into the great Russian heartland uh, uh, and behave appallingly, well, at that point, you know, Stalin and his regime appeal to Russian patriotism. And they do it in all sorts of ways. I mean, in all sorts of symbolic ways, the uniforms in ways which are somewhat more than simply symbolic, you know, the reconciliation to some extent with the Orthodox Church. Uh, but also the absolute explicit uh, appeal to Russian patriotism, you know, and to Russian historical memory these orders of Kutuzov, Suvorov, you know, Nahimov. Uh, so at that point, uh, yes, indeed, um, you know, the, the regime taps into what is a living Russian memory. I mean, you know, uh, most literate Russians have either read or are aware of war and peace, you know, you, that this is not something you need to invent. This, this exists in the memory, you know, it's one of the great, perhaps the greatest secular memory, uh, which all Russians share. You know, uh, all Russians don't share a commitment to the revolution. All Russians don't share a commitment to much else in political terms. But they do share a commitment to 1812. You know, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a Russian who doesn't take pride in that. So, of course it resonates, you know, with Hitler outside Moscow. You've also got to remember the very simple fact that, of course, by December 1941... Uh, short of the Central Asians, to some extent the, the Georgians and the Armenians... There's only the Russians left. You know, Hitler's occupied all the other non-Russian areas, all the main ones.
That was Dominic Levin of Trinity College, Cambridge. Dominic has written a piece on Russia and Napoleon in our June issue, and he's also the author of Russia Against Napoleon, The Battle for Europe, 1807 to 1814, which was published by Alan Lane in 2009. Now, for those of you listening in the UK, we're about to head into a long holiday weekend in recognition of the Diamond Jubilee of Queen Elizabeth II. With that in mind, I have a couple of special offers for you. The current issue of BBC History magazine is a Jubilee special, with features on royal celebrations in medieval and Tudor times, plus a look at the life of the young Queen Elizabeth before she came to the throne 60 years ago. To celebrate our Jubilee special issue, we're offering all UK listeners an opportunity to sample our magazine for free. Simply call 0844 776 0308. This offer is, I'm afraid, only available for UK delivery addresses and is subject to availability. So call us quick for your free issue of BBC History magazine. That offer ends on the 30th of June 2012. If you're overseas or a digital enthusiast, don't worry, you're not forgotten. We've put together a special iPad edition on the story of the modern monarchy with features on Victoria and Albert, George V and Queen Mary and George VI, hero of the King's Speech. It's free and you can download it from the Apple App Store or go to historyextra.com forward slash monarchy for the link. Now we have a short advert. What links the weddings of kings and queens, the funeral of a hero, and the music of great composers? What was once London's grandest street, but has never contained a single cobble? What's been a stage for royal pageantry and pleasure for hundreds of years? The answer, the Thames, Britain's Royal River. Book your ticket for Royal River, Power, Pageantry and the Thames, sponsored by Barclays. A unique exhibition in celebration of Her Majesty the Queen's Diamond Jubilee and guest curated by me, David Starkey, at the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich from the 27th of April. Book now. Search online for Royal River. The Buddhas of Bamiyan were two of the most remarkable examples of Buddhist art anywhere in the world. They stood overlooking the Bamiyan Valley of Afghanistan for 1400 years until, in 2001, they were destroyed by the Taliban. Oxford classicist Llewellyn Morgan has just written a book about the statues, and BBC History Magazine's Robert Attar went to meet him recently to learn their tragic story. Who was it who built these Buddhas and why did they do that? That's uh, actually a very difficult uh, question to answer, though a very uh, interesting one. Um, We know when they were built because um, uh, uh, radiocarbon dating has been done of the um, statues. So we know they were built uh, in the 6th century AD and the 7th century AD. And discovering who built them is, is... really an exercise in in discovering who was powerful at that time in that area. We know that there was a sort of a local, strong um, Buddhist kingdom there, because it's visited by uh, a Chinese monk called Xuanzang in the um, 7th century. And we also know there's sort of a powerful, um, larger empire um, ruled by a bunch of people called the Western Turks, who seem to be the overlords of this more local uh, regime in Bamiyan. But if only we knew more about that Buddhist um, kingdom, uh, we'd, we'd love to know much more about it, but they don't, haven't left any in, inscriptions, very little information uh, surviving from them, aside from that account of uh, Tsuan Sang, the Chinese monk, which is, of course, precious. 
So how would the Buddhists have got to this area in the first place? Was it to do with the Silk Route? Uh, yes, the Silk Route is, is, is a useful uh, term in this uh, connection. What we're talking about is uh, a general movement of um, Buddhist um, belief and uh, observation out of uh, India, tending to sort of follow the, the trade routes. Um, uh, and the, the key to the significance of Bamiyan, when it was a Buddhist centre, also the key to the significance of, of Bamiyan throughout history, is that it's on a trade route, an important route through this formidable mountain barrier, the Hindu Kush, which runs through the middle of um, Afghanistan. So um, what we're talking about is merchants, pilgrims, priests, soldiers to um, extending their influence along the trade routes between India and Central Asia and between the sort of Indian uh, um, area of cultural um, significance and uh, sort of Iranian area of, of cultural uh, influence and moving through Bamiyan because Bamiyan is a kind of a connecting point between those two, uh, those two block, cultural blocks if you like. Were any other Buddhas of this kind of scale built around the same period? Yeah, we, we, the, the, there are quite significant uh, large Buddhas built uh, in China, and uh, there's a very large um, copper Buddha that's built in Japan at roughly this period. And those are quite interesting um, events, actually, because in both uh, cases, the large Buddhas are associated with very strong... Um, self-expression by local magnates, by, by local kings, in the case of uh, the Japanese uh, one, the, the emperor. So it, it, it supports one kind of line of thinking about the Buddhas at Bamiyan, that these very, very large Buddhas are perhaps, amongst other things, a reflection of the power of a local king and the desire of a local king to, um, you know, to, to express his piety and his power by his ability to build these, um, these huge monuments. Do we know much about how they were constructed? Yes, quite a lot. And um, somewhat ironically, we uh, have probably discovered more about that than we ever have before since they were destroyed. Because one of the things that the um, fragments uh, are able to tell us, and the fragments have been very, very, very carefully sifted by archaeologists, what, what they've been able to tell us is in detail uh, the extent to which the um, Buddhas were carved from the, from the living rock, which is a fairly minimal extent actually it's only sort of the very basic form of these uh, sculptures which were sculpted directly from the rock and in, in addition to that um, the techniques used to to give them a lifelike uh, appearance um, so the, the um, archaeologists have discovered that there were sort of multiple layers of clay uh, uh, applied to the surface of the rock after the initial carving um, ultimately a sort of layer of clay which was capable of carrying um, paint and also we know that there were lots of um, uh, uh, wooden armatures uh, and, and, and sort of uh, plaster constructions uh, which were attached to the statues, which of course hasn't, haven't survived for, for the thousand years or, or so it would require. So, um, y yes, we know a, a great deal about how they, were, um, how they were constructed, a great deal about how they were decorated, um, uh, even to the extent of knowing they were, they were repeatedly repainted over a period of a couple of hundred uh, years. So you know, there were paintings, the painting, the paint discoloured, repainting uh, occurred and so on. And was there more to this complex than just these two statues? Were there other treasures in the area? Yes. Um, 
And that's one of the things that uh, one has to insist upon when one is uh, talking about Bamiyan, that there uh, were these remarkable Buddhas, but as, again, archaeologists in particular have discovered in the last ten years or so, there's a great deal else uh, to find around uh, Bamiyan. So, to begin with, in the valley, um, there are lots of remains of monastery complexes. So uh, when uh, Bamiyan was a thriving Buddhist uh, centre, the valley, which is now essentially a sort of uh, a, um, agricultural space, was covered in uh, monastic buildings. Um, and so they found the, the foundations of, of um, monastic housing, also the remains of... Uh, um, buildings which would have been very impressive in their day, potentially as impressive as the Buddhas, in particular a massive stupa, uh, which is a very important um, architectural form in, um, in Buddhism, which was perhaps as much as 80 metres uh, high, utterly collapsed now because it was made out of mud brick and, and hasn't survived. But yes, a great deal else. Um, also lots of more recent historical material there. There, there are lots of castles and um, uh, fortifications in the vicinity that tell us about the more recent history of Bamiyan. Bamiyan was a very important place in, um, in the um, uh, 12th century uh, in particular under the Ghorid um, dynasty and lots and lots of extremely impressive uh, structures uh, within easy distance of, of Bamiyan are associated with that kind of later period of, of history. So when did the Muslims first start moving into this area? Right, okay. Um, it's a very, very muddy historical record, um, the uh, Islamicisation of, of Bamiyan. But we, I think we're to imagine that there were Muslims at, um, at Bamiyan from the middle of the um, 8th century uh, at, at the latest, so from, from about 750 or something like that. Um, so perhaps um, 100 years after um, uh, Muslims had first set foot on what's now um, Afghan soil. Um, how long it takes for the place to become thoroughly Islamic is, a, is, a, is another story, of course. But the most interesting thing I think we discover about um, Bamiyan, in particular from recent radiocarbon dating of, of um, paintings and these kinds of things, and close study of the caves and the materials within the caves, the most in interesting thing we discover is that it must have been the case that Muslims and, and Buddhists coexisted at Bamiyan for a significant period of time, for something approaching a couple of hundred years. There were Buddhists in this place and there were um, Muslims in this place at the, at the same time. And do we know much about how the the Muslims there prior to the Taliban, how they treated these statues, what they thought of them? Uh, yes, we know, we know quite uh, a lot. I mean, one of the most interesting things um, I discovered researching Bamiyan was how rich a cycle of myths and legends the local people had, had, had woven to explain this very peculiar place in which they lived. So the people of Bamiyan are, are uh, a Muslim, they're Shia uh, Muslims. Um, but what they've done is, is what they have is a whole set of stories centred around a, a, um, a character, um, Hazrat, um, Hazrat Ali, the, um, the, the son-in-law and, and the cousin of the, of the Prophet, who is a, a kind of uh, St George figure who 
um, in a series of stories, uh, sort of saves the, the, the maiden who's threatened by the dragon and converts the kingdom to uh, Islam or, or kills the, the, uh, um, the, 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 the pagan uh, king who's been there beforehand and converts the place to Islam. And um, one way of understanding the Buddhas of Bamiyan for the local people was that they were representations of the last pre-Islamic king and the last pre-Islamic queen. So the king and queen um, were there, as it were, preserved in stone as a memorial to Hazrat Ali's um, uh, uh, conversion of the, of the place. But, but these Muslims wouldn't have had any thought of trying to destroy the, the statues that we know of? No, um, absolutely not. And, and if, you could, if we could see again the, the Buddhas as they, as they were up until um, 2000-2001, what you were looking at were monuments which had, had suffered the, you know, the, the inevitable consequences of being in a very seismically active uh, part of the, the, the world. But in other respects, in important respects, had not been damaged in any significant way. I mean, there's debates about um, whether any damage, any significant damage had deliberately been done uh, to the statues. But local people, no, no, no significant damage to the statues at all. There was a, a degree of neglect uh, of course, there was in, in Bamiyan up until the 20th century no system of um, protecting historic monuments or anything like that. That changed with um, the Afghan government taking, taking a sort of a greater interest in preserving its uh, archaeological remains. But absolutely no deliberate attempt to destroy what was there, no, far from it. So what do you think changed? Why do you think the Taliban decided they did want to destroy these, these statues? Again, that's a very interesting and difficult um, question to answer. What we do know is that in the late 90s the Taliban uh, leadership were explicitly saying that the Buddhas of Bamiyan were protected. Um, and so one of the things that makes the destruction of the Buddhas so strange is that it's a dramatic reversal of a policy that, um, that Mullah Omar and uh, the other Taliban seem to have been committed to. Now. What seems to have become a little clearer over the last um, 10 years or so is the degree to which um, Taliban ideology um, in 2000 and 2001 was being affected by the uh, Al-Qaeda presence in um, Afghanistan. Um, and um, commentators such as uh, Ahmed Rashid, who's perhaps the, the, the most um, uh, impressive commentator on, on the Taliban and interpreter of the Taliban, Believe, uh, he believes that what was actually happening there was that a sort of a, an international jihadist uh, kind of ideology was being imposed on uh, the Taliban by Al-Qaeda. The really striking thing about the destruction of the Buddhas of Bamiyan is that it's an international gesture and the Taliban are not fundamentally an internationally directed organisation. They're, they're an organisation with a domestic uh, project in mind. The destruction of the Buddhas of Bamiyan grabbed all the international headlines and it increased the um, recruitment for um, Al-Qaeda immensely in the next uh, couple of months. And when you look at things like that in retrospect, you think, was this a, an Al-Qaeda spectacular? Was this something that, um, that actually came out of um, bin Laden's interest? in making a massive impact and sort of um, provoking conflict between West and East. That, seemed, that has started to seem to many people a more plausible explanation of what was, what was happening there than, um, than, than any other. 
And was there much opposition within Afghanistan at the time to this action? It's hard to say, but um, tellingly, um, we have evidence of people within the Taliban ranks trying to persuade Mullah Omar not to not to proceed with this um, with this uh, policy. Um, and you know, one assumes that if if people within the Taliban, who are not going to be locals, uh, they're going to be from other parts of Afghanistan, but if they are very worried about this change in policy that suggests that more broadly across Afghanistan there was uh, there was extreme disquiet, in fact dismay, uh, about what did what did happen. Do you think it was possible for the international community to have done more to protect the statues? No, not really. Um, for the reasons I think I've already um, suggested, um, I think it was because. Ironically, the international community had made such a big deal about the archaeology of Afghanistan that certain people thought it would be a very good idea um, to destroy that material. More, it was more than just the Buddhas of Bamiyan that were destroyed in um, 2001. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a familiar um, fact that um, Taliban uh, went into the museum, in the National Museum in Kabul, and destroyed Buddhist. Uh, statues there, not just Buddhist um, statues there. Um, it was because I think members of the international community had impressed upon certain people within Afghanistan how much the West valued this material. That was what drew attention to this material. It was with the best of intentions that it was done, but unfortunately it drew attention to the Buddhas, which otherwise might well have been entirely ignored. Really the Taliban wasn't interested in this kind of stuff. It just didn't concern them um, in the slightest. Something drew their attention to it and that was the really disastrous thing, I think. Have there been around the world any other similar examples of cultural vandalism in recent times or is this really unprecedented? There are always examples of these kinds of things um, and, and subsequently when um, um, people within the Taliban were, were seeking to uh, justify what had happened. They tried to suggest, for example, that it was revenge uh, for the destruction of the mosque at uh, Ayodhya by Hindu nationalists. Um, so in that part of the world, there's a, uh, I mean, very broadly understood as, as the part of the world where um, Islam and, and Hinduism uh, encounter each other. Um, there has been within recent years something of a malign tradition of insisting that um, the currently dominant religion um, must be absolutely dominant in terms of um, uh, what uh, monuments are visible uh, to to the, the general worshipper to the to the general visitor. So yes, unfortunately, um, this 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 has uh, happened elsewhere. I don't think any. I could easily find myself uh, corrected here. But the really striking thing about the destruction of the Buddhas of Bamiyan was how much effort it required to bring them down. These are statues which uh, were cut out of the rock, so they were attached to the rock um, uh, uh, up their backs and up to the back of their heads. So they were effectively part of the mountain that they were carved out of. And to bring them down was a, an astonishing achievement and it required an astonishing application of resources, um, which of course sharpens the question, why on earth did it happen? But it tells you that it takes a great deal of effort to destroy um, things and a great deal of effort to destroy um, these statues. So if there is any exercise of cultural destruction that 
drew in the resources that this did, um, resources in a very impoverished country in general, of course, then I'd be, I'd be surprised in recent times at any rate. I've read in a few articles that there's been talk of trying to rebuild at least one or perhaps mm -hmm. both of the Buddhas. Do you think that would be the right course to take? Um, it might be in the longer term. We've got to be very, 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 very careful uh, about this. Um, there are serious technical issues that uh, need to be clarified, you know, whether it's possible, uh, what a reconstruction would involve, um, what it would look like um, in the final um, outcome. There are issues about how acceptable a reconstruction of a Buddha would be in um, the local context of Bamiyan and in the wider context of Afghanistan. There's a significant difference potentially between um, Afghans in general deploring the destruction of the Buddhas and Afghans countenancing the construction of an idol, of a non-Islamic idol. I, I, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I suspect nobody knows the answer to that, whether it would be acceptable. Within Bamiyan itself, the people, I think, in general do want um, one of the Buddhas at least to be reconstructed. To some extent, that's because they imagine, I think, that that will, in, some, in one kind of magic gesture, recreate the tourist industry that they were developing in Bamiyan in the 60s and the 70s. Now again, there, there's, a, there's a very careful management of expectations that, that, that needs to be done in, in, in Bamiyan by archaeologists there, because it's, it's no good unless something, in inverted commas, authentic is reconstructed. If a, a, a small Buddha or a large Buddha, for that matter, made out of resin, resin or something, uh, is put up. That's not going to bring the tourists back. Many other things are required for the tourists to come back to Bamiyan, of, of course. Another thing to say is that this would cost a heck of a lot of money. This would, this would cost tens of millions of dollars. And this is a very, very poor part of a very, very poor country and it's a very poor part of a poor country that doesn't have um, publicly generated electricity at, po at this point for example. Now if a reconstructed Buddha meets all those other criteria and also if we can be confident about it that it will bring a proportionate economic benefit to the people of Bamiyan, why not? Um, but that is a very hypothetical situation and before we reconstruct a Buddha at, at Bamiyan, there are so many other things we need to do in terms of preserving the, the rich archaeological context of the Buddhas, the um, monastic buildings that have been found in the, in the valley of Bamiyan, all these um, fortifications from a, a later period um, around the place which have been in more recent times used as defensive positions within the civil war which hasn't done their fabric awfully much good. So we've got to get our priorities right and preserving what's there I think commonsensically um, needs to take priority over reconstructing something that isn't there anymore. Okay, you know, I think I've been through all, all the questions I had to ask. Is there anything else you wanted to comment on? Or Yeah, one thing that struck me when I was writing um, this book, which I hadn't expected um, when I started uh, writing the book, was the degree to which this country had had a connection, not just to Afghanistan, which we know about, we know that we're in our fourth war in um, Afghanistan now, but the degree to which this country in the past has known all about Bamiyan, 
I rather naively thought that we learnt about Bamiyan for the first time, really, when the Buddhas of Bamiyan were under threat um, in um, 2001. I mean, archaeologists and uh, historians had known about the Buddhas of Bamiyan, but in general, that's when we learnt about them. But in fact, what I discovered when reading the, when uh, researching the book, was just how celebrated a place Bamiyan was at certain moments in um, British and European history. Um, so, for example, in the 1830s and 40s, when we're in the run-up to the first Anglo-Afghan war and then in the first Anglo-Afghan war, we have lots of best-selling accounts of um, journeys through um, Afghanistan or hostage crises in Afghanistan, which give a central position to, to Bamiyan and describe Bamiyan and, and, and include depictions of the Buddhas uh, at Bamiyan as well. Almost as suddenly as, as, as we hear about Bamiyan in Britain, it's forgotten about. And so somebody 50 years later can write in the Illustrated London News about um, Bamiyan as if nobody's heard of it before. But it's fascinating to see a kind of a parallel to what everybody says about our unforgivable ignorance about um, Afghanistan. You know, we've been here before, we've had wars in Afghanistan before. We have indeed. We've also known about the archaeology of Afghanistan before and we keep forgetting about it. But we've been amazed by it. Our great-great-grandparents were amazed by Bamiyan, just as uh, you know, we were momentarily amazed and shocked by Bamiyan in, in 2001. That was Dr Llewellyn Morgan. His book, The Buddhas of Bamiyan, has just been published by Profile. That's all for this week. Next time around, our topics will be the Second World War through the eyes of Anthony Beaver and oral history of post-partition India and Pakistan. Before you go, do keep an eye on our website, historyextra.com, for blogs, quizzes, galleries and much more. And don't forget, if you'd like to get us digitally, we're on Kindle and iPad. Go to the Amazon and Apple newsstand sites respectively. The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson.